so we'll get going. Uh, welcome, thank you all for joining us for our discussion today of William Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Um, for those of you who are new to uh, our discussion group, you're all welcome to talk, uh, and this will be a very open discussion. So we encourage your participation, uh, and we enjoy hearing your voices. If you do not feel comfortable or do not have a microphone uh, by which to speak, feel free to chat in the discussion chat live channel, and we will do our best to make sure that uh, uh, your comments, your questions, your ideas uh, make it into the larger discourse. And so with that, I think we'll hop right into this. Um, just some final remarks from last session to kind of carry in, us into William Blake. Uh, when we last spoke of Borges, one of the things we spoke of was the, the writing of poetry, um, the instantiation of passion and uh, love, and, and how that um, carries into poetry, but also the writing of encyclopedia-type uh, novels and poetry. And um, we, we looked at how uh, the way Carlos was writing his poetry, there's a very easy critique to be made um, from one side of it, but on the other side, his audience of critics would seem to love it. So there's an interesting use of poetry there. Uh, hey, Riley. On the other side, we had Borges talking about maybe there was something, uh, maybe the trick wasn't so much that, but that the Aleph he was using to write his encyclopedic poem turned out not to be the Aleph. Uh, maybe the true Aleph, according to Borges, is something more like a sort of humming hid inside of a pillar, which he likens to a, a heart of stone, or as Blake might call it, uh, a heart of earth. And uh, I think that's probably a good place to dive into Blake. And so, just to give a few remarks, to set up um, just a little bit of background information before we open up the, da the discussion. For those of you who don't know, William Blake is something of a mystic artist. Um, his poetry and his prose is very impactful, uh, and it is meant usually to be read with the, the presence of the visual plate. So uh, we did post a, a link, and we'll make sure if you didn't get it, you'll, uh, you'll get the chance to view them. But uh, most of this, the, the work he does comes on uh, these plates, and on the plates is the written word with these different images and these very illustrated depictions of um, either things in the poem or things that will be connected with the poem or even the prose. And uh, the, part of the reason that this is kind of important to understand about William Blake's work uh, is in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. He's going to talk about infernal ink and infernal methods of printing with corrosive acids. And um, this refers in part to his actual profession as a, um, as a plate maker. So William Blake actually developed a whole method um, in, in doing engravings and performing that kind of work, uh, whereby acid could be used to um, corrode away what was around the etchings. 
and through this method, he was able to produce a new kind of, um, not only a new kind of printing, but also he was able to develop these kind of plates and perform the work he was looking to put out there. And you'll see that in the marriage uh, in terms of the infernal ink and the corrosive, uh, I think he calls them salient corrosive acids, right? like health-giving acids. But with that, um, this was written about 1790, so the American and French revolutions have occurred. Um, this is just around the turn of the century into the 18th, or I'm sorry, into the um, 19th century. And so this is an interesting point in history he's writing. Uh, with that, I'd like to step back now and open up the discussion uh, to you, my friends. Does anyone have any general remarks or impressions of the the marriage of heaven and hell you'd like to begin with? I guess my favorite line is, uh, truth can never be told so as to be understood and not be believed. Yeah, that was, uh, I believe, one of the proverbs of hell, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, we will spend some time going over those. Uh, the Firebird, I think you had something to say. Yeah, uh, I thought that some of the ideas expressed in this work were um, sort of Nietzschean in some ways. Uh, it, the distinction between heaven and hell uh, resembles uh, the distinction between the Apollonian and the Dionysian ethics. And I thought that was interesting. Uh, you know, making a connection between Nietzsche and this work. Yeah, and also the importance of poetry in Nietzsche's work, right? I, I can definitely see the comparisons. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, Nietzsche, he comes along after this work. So it's kind of interesting to think that maybe, um, maybe he was reading William Blake at one time. Go ahead, Alyosha. I was just going to say, I mean, this is also my first exposure to William Blake and just reading a little bit about his life and his preoccupations and his work. I'm really interested um, to keep pursuing him after this. Um, I really liked the his kind of the way of like using paradoxes to rail against these, I guess, what he saw as binaries. So the body and the soul, you know, the heaven and hell. And you know, it's a theme throughout the text. But just some some lines that stood out to me was um, this one that I actually it. it it rang of Aldous Huxley, and I looked it up, and, it, and it, I think it is where Huxley got it from. The If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. I thought that was a really great one. And he, there's a few lines where he talks about you know, all gods, all deities residing in the human breast, um, things like that. And uh, in particular, I just I like the inversions of him trying to treat all these sinful and, and sort of typically understood as bad categories as productive. Yeah, and, and you're, you're correct. Huxley is getting the, um, when he writes his, um, I think it's a, it's a bio, sort of a biography of his experience on mescaline, right? The Doors of Perception. Uh, you're correct. He is getting that from uh, William Blake. And in case anyone listening is a Doors fan, this is where Jim Morrison gets the name The Doors, The Doors of Perception. <laughs> All righty then. Um, 
I think then if no one has any more remarks, we are going to do this a little bit differently than we normally do where we kind of jump around the test. We're going to try and take it section by section because um, the test kind of works by building off these ideas and bouncing around with them. So even though we could start uh, at, any different, at any fancier with the Proverbs, I think it'll kind of help us build our way through it if we start with the argument. And uh, because it opens up with Rintra, um, to lay a little bit of context, Blake is not quite a cosmologist. He's not creating a creation story. Uh, Blake is developing a, um, a mythopoeia, which is a, just a, a word that basically means he's developing a mythology, uh, and particularly a poetic mythology. Poetry in its, uh, or the word poetry, in a very old Greek sense, refers to fashioning and creating, which, as you've probably seen, is a huge part of William Blake's um, ideas. And so with that, um, would anyone like to read the argument? All right, I'll give it a go then. Rintra roars and shades his fires in the burdened air. Hungry clouds swag on the deep. Once meek and in a perilous path, the just man kept his course along the veil of death. Roses are planted where thorns grow, and on the barren heath sing the honeybees. Then the perilous path was planted, and a river and a spring on every cliff and tomb, and on the bleached bones red clay brought forth, till the villain left the paths of ease to walk in perilous paths and drive the just man into barren climes. Now the sneaking serpent walks in mild humility, and the just man rages in the wild where lions roam. Rintra roars and shades his fires in the burdened air. Hungry clouds swag on the deep. Uh, what do you all make of this? Yeah, this one's definitely tough to me. I mean, it's even hard for me to even follow along the imagery. Um, something about, oh, I don't even know whether to trust this like dichotomy between the uh, meek just man and the serpent or whether that's being used uh, ironically. Yeah, there is some juxtaposition going on, right? So we've got... Um... We've got the just man compared to the uh, compared to the villain and to the serpent, right? Sorry, I cut out there for a second. I, I wasn't sure if did you start explaining that? Yep, we were just starting to open it up, and so the the first comment was about um, this juxtaposition between the just man and the um, the villain who leaves the path of ease or the sneaking serpent. Is there a kind of garden imagery? I mean, on this plate, there's, yeah, some, there, if I'm looking at the right plate, there's like a woman reaching up to this man who's holding, like, from, holding her hand from up in the tree. And then the imagery of the, the roses and the thorns and all that. Is it, I mean, he, since the Bible is a lot of the kind of imagery that he uses throughout the text, is there, is there a kind of, you know, some allegory of the garden here? 
Yeah, I think there's definitely a sense of um, a garden of fertility, right? We've got um, roses are planted where thorns grow. And uh, to your point, we've got a couple uh, reaching up in the trees. And uh, because of the, uh, I'm seeing some uh, questions about Rintra. Uh, so like what Blake is doing here is he's referring to one of his characters in the Mythopoeia. Uh, and in this sense, like, you can see this is working just like it's some somebody you should know, right? So like Rintra roars, you know, it's a very clear invocation. Um, and so like uh, Rintra shows up in some of Blake's other work. But what's going on here, right, is Rintra, uh, and you can see all these hard R sounds. Um, Rintra is roaring and shaking the fires of the burdened air, right? So if we're in a garden, there's the sense of the sky above us of the air. And uh, what he's doing is shaking forth fire in the air with a, a sort of like, um, I read it as a sort of unburdening of it, setting things alight. And the, the hungry clouds, the word swag might be a little bit unfamiliar, but the hungry uh, clouds adorn the deep. They're like a drapery. So it's almost like we're peering into this image of the sky on fire with uh, this, this sort of um, sort of something like a divinity, perhaps, uh, setting the sky alight. Is there something about the villainous, the villain that is kind of, he's an early hinting of the inversion he's going to do because... This thing of the villain left the paths of ease to walk in perilous paths and drive the just man into barren climes. I guess as we read the poem, just instinctively, he, he's kind of doing a lot of these inversions. And I wonder if we, re we should read that with at face value or not, because isn't for Blake the just man kind of, you know, the angel and reason and all these things, aren't they? They're kind of restrictive. So is there something we should read in there about, you know, maybe he's hinting at something leaving the path of ease being a necessary or positive thing, I wonder. Yeah, I, I think you're definitely on to something because um, usually when a poet starts out with an argument, they're going to give you like a sort of exposition of the text you're going to read. And what I think Blake is doing here is giving us not an exposition, but an illustration and a demonstration. So as we read this, um, this piece, we're going to see a lot of this um, come to life. The, the fire in the air, the, um, the perilous path and the just man, like Alyosha is talking about. We're going to see these notions start to um, start to conflict. Or in, in, in another sense, right, we have roses planted where thorns grow. You know, this idea of um, something beautiful and, and um, fertile planted where uh, thorns are. So uh, Alyosha, since you, you brought up the just man, wh what do you make of the just man here? Um, it's interesting. It's hard to say because, again, I, I don't know if I'm misreading it, but um, you, you start, the just man is originally, he says, once in a perilous path, once meek in a perilous path, kept his course along through the veil of death. And then he kind of ends up, you know, as we say further on, 
he's driven into barren climes. I almost wonder if this is kind of part of Blake's critique of like repressive morality, maybe like the way that this supposedly uh, the strictures of sort of formal religion and, and so-called, I don't know, into theology lead you into this kind of completely barren, like lack of, there's no pathos, there's no creativity and there's no sensuality, I guess, which seems to be, I'm learning is a big part of his work. Um, so maybe if that, if that's how the, the just, uh, maybe I'm misreading, but I kind of see it as like maybe the just man is, has blinders on a little bit. Um, and so they're being led to this barren climb. And whereas the serpent is, so the serpent walks in mild humility, whereas it's the just man raging in the wilds. That might be an interesting contrast to think about that. The serpent who's supposed to be the evil one in the sort of classical story is the humble one. And the just man is raging in the wilds. Like, I don't know, maybe sort of Don Quixote style. I don't know. Maybe that's a bad analogy as well. Like raging in this wilderness, thinking that what he's doing is like pure. That's, that's my reading. Yeah, and there's definitely some sort of transformation going on, right? Just like you're saying, uh, we have the just man walking the perilous path along death, uh, death's valley, and then we have the uh, the perilous plant path getting planted, and from that, uh, right, the beached, uh, the bleached bones, and red clay brought forth. So we have man being created, or even like resurrected in a sense. Uh, but in, in a basic sense, right, the life of man there. And so the villain leaves the path of ease, walking in perilous paths, driving the just man into barren climates. So we can already see there's this, this um, the just man is going to leave the perilous path and go into the wild, like Alyosha is saying. And so as we watch this, um, we'll see this kind of appear again when we look at Ezekiel and Isaiah and some of the other characters. Uh, Begum, did you, did you want to say something? Um, I, I was going to jump on to the point uh, that Alyosha made. It's like kind of boring or like restrictive. And uh, Brett goes on to say in a couple of pages that uh, there's like no ideas to build on. And um, they have to borrow from hell to uh, make up something. So, like, actually, uh, heaven is always uh, being fed on hell, like all these examples that are always about that. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. And the examples keep coming up to us, right? We keep seeing this kind of playing out in different ways. And so as we, we move into this, right, we'll keep the argument in the back of our heads because I think it I think it gets easier to think about this as we move through the text. Because it's right, it's illustrating a lot of the text for us as we go. And so um who would like to read the the bit before the voice of the devil? I don't mind. Um as a new heaven is begun, and it is now 33 years since its advent, the eternal hell revives. And lo, 
Swedenborg is the angel sitting at the tomb. His writings are the linen clothes folded up. Now is the dominion of Edom and the return of Adam into paradise. See Isaiah 34 and 35, chapter something. Without contraries is no progression. Attraction and repulsion, reason and energy, love and hate are necessary to human existence. From these contraries spring what the religious call good and evil. Sorry, guys. Cut the doorbell. Good is the passive that obeys reason. Evil is the active springing from energy. Good is heaven. Evil is hell. All right. What do you guys think? Um, attraction and repulsion. Those sounds familiar. Uh, one more time, please. I'm having just a little bit of trouble hearing you. I mean, attraction and repulsion is like vocabulary we've been talking about for a really long time. Yeah, we have our, our first set of um, contraries, right? So let's uh, walk this back a little bit. Um, what Blake is setting up here in the beginning is he's talking about, um, this is in reference to Emanuel Swedenborg, who um, announces a new heaven, uh, and it happens to be the year William Blake is born. And so um, what William Blake is doing here is he's saying that uh, 33 years after that announcement of a new heaven comes the, the resurrection of the eternal hell, right? And so with that, um, Blake is setting up a contrary to Emanuel Swedenborg, who is also a, um, is also a mystic and writing about, yep, and it, yeah, it is a reference to uh, his theological work, Heaven and Hell, that's correct. And so, right, like, this is starting out with William Blake saying, uh, Swedenborg is the angel sitting at the tomb. His writings are the linen cloths folded up. So this is starting out with like the scene of Jesus in his tomb, who is resurrected, so his body is no longer there. And uh, instead, what you have is Swedenborg present, and his writings are the cloth that uh, are left behind. So you can see this is kind of like a, a, a sort of a literary burn. Um, I also can't help but um, think about Nietzsche uh, when I read these lines because, uh, you know, Nietzsche also talks about um, the repressive nature of slave morality and Christian morality and things like that. Um, um, you know, he proposes uh, that the Ubermensch uh, way of life ethics, I guess, is a combination of the Apollonian and the Dionysian. Dionysian. So um, a combination of rationality and um, the animal side of man. And um, these lines, um, of course, Nietzsche came after Blake, and um, as Winterreiser pointed out, um, 
Blake was quite obscure still when Nietzsche was writing on the genealogy of morality. But um, these lines, um, I think, are making an argument that's kind of similar to Nietzsche's idea of ethics in a general sense. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely see where you're coming from with Nietzsche. Um, and this is going to look a little bit different, right? So um, you're right, Nietzsche's got the Apollonian, the Dionysian. But uh, Blake walks it back even further and says, uh, right, without contraries is no progression. So it's not even just the Apollonian and the Dionysian. He's uh, drawing our attention now uh, to a world of contraries from which progression occurs. Did anyone already talk about the 33 thing? Yeah, so that's, um, there's a couple things going on there. In part, what Blake is doing is he's, um, so like Swedenborg announces the new heaven the year Blake is born. And so then Blake at 33 is writing this, which is similar to like um, uh, Christ's ministry and all that. I think he gets crucified at 33. That's kind of what I was thinking of. I thought I, that's the parallel I saw. Yeah. Except this isn't a new heaven per se. This is a new, actually, this isn't even a new hell. This is the internal hell coming back. So you can already see this is like, right, if we're talking about contraries, we've got, um, we've got the contrary to, to Emanuel Swedenborg, which is going to be our narrator in a lot of ways. And now we've got the contrast of the, the new heaven with the, uh, the eternal hell. So I was just trying to look up what Edom is referencing to, and it seems like that might be referring to Esau from the Bible and the color red. So drawing some connection between that and the red clay in the argument. I don't have any conclusions of that yet, except that that's kind of what's creeping into the uh, valley that the uh, other guy was into, right? It's a red clay brought forth on the bleached bones. Now the domain of dominion of Edom and the return of Adam into paradise. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. And it, it so right, like fires uh, red too. So we've got this notion of um, this really bold, daring color uh, following us through this already. And so like, like Doug is saying, right, um, there's this change in the guard going on where the, the eternal hell has come back, uh, dominion of Edom is upon us, and Adam is returning to paradise. So you've got a lot of biblical imagery uh, being given to us. And he, uh, the narrator gives us uh, Isaiah 34 and 35 to kind of like begin to understand some of the, where he's getting this from. But what he's referring to is prophecy, right? Just to read you a little bit of Isaiah 34, uh, this is verse four. And you can probably start to see where this is gonna play into this. Uh, their slain will be thrown out. The stench will rise from their corpses. The mountains will flow with their blood. The whole host of heaven will decompose the heavens themselves be rolled up like a scroll. All their array, 
will wither away like a withering grape leaf that follows from a vine or a withered fig from a fig tree. The eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. No lion or other beast of prey will be there traveling on it. They will not be found there, but the redeemed will go there. So you can see a lot of this imagery paralleling Isaiah and playing off of it. We've got uh, lions coming out at us, the senses. So you can see uh, Blake is kind of weaving this together. So with that, I think what's probably drawing most people's attention is that last part about contraries. So what is Blake talking about there? Dialectics. Is he? <laughs> He's talking about something with tensions and oppositions leading to progress, which is, well, seems to be kind of its own idea. Mm -hmm. Could you repeat the question, uh, Jack? So what do we make of this final section from uh, without contraries is no progression? I guess it's going to connect to maybe some of the later points that he's making about you know, he's, he talks about the excess of joy and in the Proverbs um, from hell, I can't remember what they're called. There's a lot about, yeah, how these, the, the things that we would consider to be opposites are actually the source of possibly wisdom, uh, intelligence, actual experience of the world, you know, the experience of infinity, all those things. So Along with the title, it seems like that's what he's trying to get, go for. It's not heaven or hell, but the marriage of the two. Um, yeah. Perhaps. I think the word marriage is going to get um, called into question a lot here. But I, I think I agree with you um, that there's something about wisdom that comes with these it, its opposition to folly and their, their contrarian nature. Right, so it's like, um, to unpack this just a little bit, if, if wisdom and folly are necessary to human existence, then we can't always be wise, can we? But neither can we always be foolish. It also seems like it, it actually does have some biblical basis, you know, because there's the, maybe I, I could guess that some of Blake's perspective has to do with how these lessons and stories were kind of papered over by the contemporary religion. He goes into that, I think, with the, when he talks about priests. But, you know, there's the whole fundamental concept in Christianity, at least, and some Jewish traditions of, you know, the, the knowledge comes from having eaten the fruit you know, of the tree, right, which was the, Adam and Eve weren't supposed to do. So on some level, it's kind of maybe he's trying to take that point to its radical conclusion in a sense that if you think that through, then all forms of wisdom and knowledge are born of sin, in a sense, which maybe, you know, he's trying to rethink that. Yeah, I think you're right. And that's what a lot of this is going to do is open up things like sin to thinking about it differently. So, like, in some ways, you can kind of see Blake as sort of pre prefiguring a lot of post-structuralism. Um, it's going to open up and, and sort of play with a lot of things that are... Um, 
make up a lot of our, our own myths and our own um, our own knowledge today. And so just like Alyosha is saying, uh, right, we're going to have love and hate. We're not going to just have love or we're not just going to have hate. Um, and so in, in that sense, right, if, if sin, if we can't believe that sin is simply the contrary of what is good, right, or if we can't believe that, um, you know, the opposite of this thing is obviously what's, um, what's damnable, then we're already moving into a pretty big uh, shift in our, our thinking and our, um, our sense of morality, right? And to, to move further into this, uh, right, love and hate are necessary to the human condition. So we need both to be human. We, we can't do one without the other. Uh, so what do you guys make of this? From these contraries spring what the religious call good and evil. Good is the passive that obeys reason. Evil is the active springing from energy. Good is heaven. Evil is hell. What I understand of that is that they are of equal value, good and bad, and they are like from one source, which then is differentiated by religion, and then religion goes on to say that one is better than the other. In fact, there's like there's only one source. Yeah, there is this sense of favoritism, right? Kind of like um, uh, Begum is saying, where the good seems so easily identified in exclusion of the evil. Uh, Here, it looked like you had a comment. Oh, well, um, no, I was just uh, muted because I was doing a bunch of stuff. But actually, I wanted to bring up um, the active-passive thing and... Uh, reason and energy remind me of uh, well I love me a good duality but I mean obviously the the whole text is around the theme of the union of opposites uh, coincidentia positorum alchemical idea but the, the the dualities I'm reminded of are the order and chaos duality or the conscious and unconscious duality that kind of happens with uh, cities and laws uh, and our uh, de deities going from female goddesses of the earth uh, that are chaotic nature, feeling tone, to male gods of the sky, um, all about order and control. Um, so that's one duality, I guess, the chaos and order and the chaos of nature and the order of man or God. And the, the Greeks had the chaos and cosmos and the void. Uh, the other duality I'm reminded of is from um, Carl Jung, um, who pits the concepts of logos and eros against each other. And um, the active springing from energy uh, sort of in juxtaposition to the passive that obeys reason, uh, reminds me of sort of the, the, the uh, logos in time as the uh, linguistic, logical, time-bound principle of psyche for, for, for Carl Jung, um, juxtaposed with the eros, which is this atemporal, mythical, 
associative binding and disconnecting force. Um, so it's not even a principle, it's a force, which is, uh, I think, also to the point. So, yeah, another one I'm reminded of, uh, which is not, which is the least relevant, but metaphysically, I think, to me, is the maybe more meaningful of the bunch, is the Whiteheadian uh, duality of actual occasions or subjects that are actual in time for themselves uh, versus uh, potential objects in eternity that are uh, accessible for everything else and they are objective to, any, to everything else. Um, and action and actuality uh, or activity in time um, kind of flips the duality on its head but yeah, that, that's kind of the stuff I'm thinking about. I think it's interesting that you bring up actually the passive and active thing because, again, just from my brief reading, uh, my sense is that Blake is writing in the kind of throes of the romantic movement of the time and in the age of reason, the so-called, you know, the French and American revolutions. There's all this stuff about... I think there's a sense in maybe the intellectual circles that, you know, the, the mind is an, a, quite an active thing, actually, and that reason is sort of, it fashions the universe. And to, uh, to identify it in, the, in the opposite way and to say, actually, all these things that we associate with reason and good are, are passive, and activity and energy come from this other side. I think, again, I guess the beginning of an interesting inversion that maybe Blake is trying to play with. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly it. Right, this is... Um... We're starting to see the tail end of the Enlightenment and the beginning of modernity, uh, and, and that's exactly it. We've got reason getting critiqued as something passive and not exactly creative. Instead of being a creative force, reason is something that's obeyed, uh, and that's why it can be called good, right? So, like, part of what's happening here is the way we, the way that the good and the beautiful are getting identified with what obeys reason as opposed to what obeys energy, well, not even what obeys energy, uh, more so what moves with energy. And that is to say that that can be called uh, hellish or evil because it's not following reason. But you're, you're right, this is bringing us right into the, you know, the heart of romanticism in many ways. So. If we've got this, this this aesthetic moral distinction here, right, and we've got these two contraries, what does it mean that uh, there is no progression without contraries? What's he suggesting to us? Well, I think there's a uh, sort of a denounce, denouncement of closure-seeking or of uh, equilibrium or... Um, sort of a boring unity or so, so that, that there is a dynamic that is going on and that life is violent and that um, that is sort of the normal way as opposed to like an aberrant pathological tendency yeah and it's not just that life is violent it's that uh, we move through violence and peace right we move through contraries 
So if we move through contraries, and that's how we make progress, uh, why would it be problematic if energy is made to be evil or hellish? I don't think it's problematic as much as uh, malfunctional or pathologized uh, in this in the Jungian sense that if you don't integrate the shadow or if you repress the unconscious in a Freudian sense that it, uh, on the individual level on, and or on the cultural level uh, it sort of comes back to kick you in the butt and that there's like there's this reckoning or there's this acceptance or going along uh, or openness right or integration uh, with this uh, less predictable uh, more uh, sort of risky um, side of life I guess yeah and so it would be problematic when you you get stuck in one right we can be reasonable and we can be energetic but if we give up the contrary then we stop making progress, right? And so if, if that is how heaven and hell is going to work, uh, then we've got a problem with heaven and hell, right? I guess that's connected to his later characterization of Jesus as an impulsive leader rather than as a lawgiver. And I don't necessarily think he sees that as a bad thing. Yeah, Jesus is impulsive, right? Blake says that uh, Jesus doesn't act. Um, he doesn't stop and say, well, how do I apply this code? His virtue comes from his impulse. He's energetic, right? So if we've got this, right, so we've got this uh, critique of heaven and hell going on, this establishment of progress through contraries, and with that comes the announcement of an, uh, the, the resurgence of the eternal hell 33 years after the new heaven. So you can kind of see where this is going, right? Uh, as uh, Gregory Salyer says, we're going straight to hell. And so with that, does anybody want to read the voice of the devil and start kind of expanding on what we're talking about? Harris seems devilish to me. And so while he's getting ready, right, we're moving into the voice of the devil, having just left the tomb where Swedenborg's uh, writings are discarded, right? So we've gone from like an angelic image to the, the voice of the devil speaking to us. So take it away, Hera. All Bibles or sacred codes have been the cause of the following errors. That man has two real existing principles. These are the a body and a soul. The energy called evil is alone from the body, and that reason called good is alone from the soul. That God will torment man in eternity for following his energies. But the following contraries to these are true. Man has no body distinct from his soul, for that called body is a portion of soul discerned by the five senses 
the chief inlets of soul in this age. Energy is the only life and is from the body and reason is the bound or outward circumference of energy. Energy is eternal delight. So those are the three points that contradict the three codes. Um, those who restrain desire do so because theirs is weak enough to be restrained. And the restrainer or reason usurps its place and governs the unwilling. And being restrained, it by degrees becomes passive till it is only the shadow of desire. The history of this is written in Paradise Lost, and the governor or reason is called Messiah. And the original archangel or possessor of the command of the heavenly, of the heavenly host is called the devil or Satan, and his children are called sin and death. But in the book of Job, Milton's Messiah is called Satan, for this history has been adopted by both parties. It indeed appeared to reason as if desire was cast out, but the devil's account is that the Messiah fell and formed the heaven of what he stole from the abyss. This is shown in the gospel where he prays to the Father to send the comforter or desire that reason or desire that reason may have ideas to build on. The Jehovah of the Bible being no other than he who dwells in flaming fire. Know that after Christ's death, he became Jehovah. But in Milton, the father is destiny, the son a ratio of the five senses, and the Holy Ghost vacuum. The reason at 31, because he was a true poet. The devil's card. All right, so what is going on in the voice of the devil? Okay, let's walk it back a little bit. So we start out with old Bibles or sacred codes have been the cause of the following errors, right? So immediately we're starting out um, with a problem with our relationship to uh, to the Bible or to sacred codes. So like, what do Bibles and sacred codes do? I'm sorry, my internet failed me. I don't know when I cut out, but I read the whole thing. <laughs> You're good. We got um, a little bit of um, static in there, but uh, we caught the end of the uh, your dramatic reading of the voice of the devil. Oh, sorry, I was trying to not be dramatic. Yeah, my, I switched to 3G. I should be fine now. Sorry. Eh, we'll give it to you for being devilish then. Um, so the question being, what do Bibles and sacred codes do? Uh, well, there's, you know, like we said, there's this early, you know, dismissal of mind-body dualism. Makes me wonder when is when is Descartes and all this stuff? I mean, is this pre or contemporary or what? I'm just curious. I believe Descartes has already happened. So yeah. Yeah, I think this is a good hundred years after Descartes. So, 
It sounds like you're seeing Descartes here. Well, among many things, I guess, I just that initial line about mind-body, you know, dualism, that sacred text. At least they, he has, understands that these in the Western world, uh, that's the function that they serve. Yeah, and so, right, like, there's a problem with Bibles and sacred codes, like, um, uh, I, I think Beetlejuice, Beetlejuicer, and I guess I can't say that one more time, uh, Beetle. Beetle says that um, Bible and sacred codes instruct us. So, like, we've just seen that, uh, the critique of reason uh, being passive and the heavenly obeying the passive uh, that is reason, right? And so we've cast off Swedenborg's uh, writings, which are kind of like a sacred code or Bible in this sense. Kind of. And so that is going to lead us to these three errors. Yeah, one thing I'm picking up on here is that he's attacking books, which are kind of by definition passive in themselves. Yeah, it's odd for a printer to do that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but I think what's key there is it's going to be the uh, the relationship there, because we're going to go to the, the print house in hell. And we're going to see um, some different notions of how to do writing. In fact, uh, in the next memorable fancy will show us uh, a different idea of writing altogether. So um, we start out with these three propositions and then three contraries to them. What do you guys make out of these? Um, uh, out of this part of it. I don't have them in front of me, unfortunately, because I'm busy with something. So if you want to go through them or. Yeah, it's definitely furthering this uh, critique of the opposition between energy and reason. Yeah. And so, um, oh, Firebird was uh, kind enough to post it in the, the chat for you. Oh. <laughs> we'll have to get you a, uh, a medal later. Um, of course, one died varnished by uh, corrosive acids. So, yeah, Doug, um, you're right. There's this critique going on about how we're understanding uh, energy and reason. So if we're understanding energy as evil and only stemming from the body, right? we're understanding the body and action as evil in contrast to reason, uh, which can only be found in the soul. The contrary to that is that energy is the, um, uh, we we'll have to take these all together, but uh, the contrary to that, right, is energy is the only life and is from the body. And reason is the bound for outward circumference of energy. So what changes here? Well, it's just totally inverting the relationship there, right? If reason is bound to energy, really. Say a little bit more for us. <clears throat> well, rather, rather than seeing them as coming from two distinct places, but kind of viewing reason as morally superior to energy and, you know, repressing it, uh, he's giving us a sort of 
idealist monist metaphysics here of the soul and uh, reason being part of the body, which is actually a portion of the soul being bound to it and therefore not really uh, superior but inferior to it. Is it inferior to it, or is it a contrary that's that's connected with it? I mean, I would say the latter, but... I mean, the fact that it's saying reason is bound to the energy and not vice versa does lead me to see there's some sort of prioritization there. Yeah. Yeah, right. And And so, like... Right, so if energy, so if reason is the bound or outward circumference of energy, right, that means where energy kind of begins to, um, shall we say, have a shape, have a perimeter. We find reason in that perimeter, but we don't find reason without the energy there, um, they're at. Yeah, I think there's the instead of a sort of confusion and melding of concepts, um, there's like a pointing out of how clearly they intertwine. Um, that sort of the codependence uh, and also the uh, sort of definitional or structural um, overlaps or I guess that that kind of flattens it out and takes the poetry out of it. But the uh, instead of reason and reason, reason coming from God alone and energy coming from body alone, there's a sort of well marriage. Or uh, and there's also like William Blake was a fan of clarity. Like clarity of style was for him really important. Uh, so I think the, this effort to, to delineate exactly where reason and uh, energy meet is what's going on and comparing the two, the, like the code and the contrary that is true. Yeah, and so like if we've got the Bi if we've got Bibles and sacred codes giving us this first error, part of what's missing is this other perspective that the devil's giving us. So right, like this is the kind of um, the indignation Blake is going to talk about that comes with um, that comes with this kind of poetic genius or what he's going to call that. But before we jump too far ahead, I, I think Hare is right that um, we're finding reason and energy in this relationship, right, which brings us back to the contraries, providing us with progress. And so if if energy is the only life and exists with the body, then how can we have um, how can we have energy be evil or be separate from uh, the soul? Right. In the previous uh, proposition, he says the there is no body distinct from the soul. I don't know. I, I sort of disagree a little bit with this um, this need for clarity or dis for things to be distinguishable. Um, 
or distinctly uh, intertwined as opposed to unclearly or ambiguously um, intertwined. Uh, but I appreciate it sort of in, in the aesthetic way, obviously. Um, however, like as a mythology, as a... Yeah. But maybe we can discuss that later. What else do you guys make of this? Um, I think it should be, I mean, this part should be understood in the context of romanticism, obviously. Uh, for example, we can draw a parallel between the music of um, Wagner and uh, what Blake is saying here. You know, uh, for example, Wagner in his music is breaking the traditional rules of harmony in lots of different ways. And he's sort of creating new rules for music. And um, he can only express himself fully um, when he gets rid of all the rules and... Um, when he starts relying on his bodily energies and um, stops relying so much on reason and, um, I guess, his supposedly distinct soul. Um, Blake is, I think, outlining um, a theory of aesthetics here um, that defined romanticism. Yeah, the romanticism is definitely heavy. But I, I think what um, we want to see here is, like Alyosha said, he's, a, he's taken away the Cartesian duality. So instead of having a mind over here and a body over there, uh, now we have the mind, or I'm sorry, uh, now we have the soul and the body is, um, is connected. And so right, if the soul, or rather, if, um, if the five senses can discern um, the soul, right? We're starting to see what Alyosha said um, elsewhere about the doors of perception opening up to us. So it's not that we have this, you know, these far apart um, things with body and uh, soul, is that actually they're intimately connected and give us insight into each other. And so, um, I think that's important because if we're moving through contraries to make progress, if we're doing this movement, then we're going to do it um, body and soul. We're not going to do it only mentally or only physically. Uh, we're, we're, we're going to do it uh, with this larger connection. And so, I don't have the background on Milton to be able to comment on some of these bits, but I think it's interesting. I think actually the archangel, so uh, yeah, the governor of reason is called Messiah, and the original archangel or possessor of the command of the heavenly host is called the devil or Satan, and his children are called sin and death. And then he says, but in the book of Job, Milton's Messiah is called Satan, and kind of goes on from that. Um, the, the devil's account is that the Messiah fell and formed a heaven of what he stole from the abyss. I think there's a lot there. It, it reminds me of a uh, tangential concept of uh, there's like certain heretical Sufi sects in Islam that actually they formulated the idea that Iblis, who was kind of corresponds to the devil in Western tradition, 
was actually, you know, the one that we should be worshiping and idealizing because he had the courage to tell God that to not, he wouldn't bow down to man and worship his intellect and that there's only one, you know, being the, the infinite that is to be, you know, worshiped. And so they, they hold Iblis up as almost a, well, someone to be modeled after. But regardless of that, I'm, I'm seeing there's like an element of that here, but I think I'm not sure if it's necessary, if it would help us to have some sense of the Milton commentary, because it does come up quite a bit. And the section ends with that. Milton wrote in fetters when he wrote of angels and God. So. Yeah. I think you're moving exactly where we should be. So this, um, this section after the three prop the three propositions and their contraries is going to help us understand these ideas a little bit more clearly. Uh, and so to, to address the line you gave us, um, if, if you've read the book of Job or at least heard about it, you've probably heard that there's this character named Satan who will accuse Job. And the idea is that, uh, right, uh, the Satan is going to afflict Job. And uh, if you haven't read the book of Job, it's some of the most profound biblical poetry or poetry in uh, just a general sense. But that's going to get juxtaposed to uh, Milton's Messiah. And so the reason that's significant is uh, in Job, or at least the reason I think it's significant, in Job, what the Satan is is not Satan in this devilish sense that torments people from hell. Uh, it's a member of uh, a deity's uh, congregation. It's the accuser, the voice of indignation. And so in Milton, the Messiah is going to work as an accuser, and it's going to be one that expels people. So if you take this together, right, and you've got... Um, but in the book of Job, Milton's Messiah is called Satan. For this history has been adapted by both parties. At this point, you see there's a perspectivism coming in, whereby there's the, um, it's going to be very difficult to now distinguish the Messiah and Milton from the, uh, from the Satan in uh, the book of Job. So what's Blake trying to get at with this kind of, um, this, this um, interplay? Anybody at all? Say it again, teach. So, um, so we've got like the active inversion of the Messiah going on as the Messiah is supposed to give us this hard distinction from the, uh, from the Satan, but they both end up being accusers. So what's going on here? I mean, I guess he's trying to, in a way, reclaim or change the understanding of Messiah from one that is, again, as we'll see later, a pure sort of transcendent form and one that is, yeah, like you're saying, if he's also an accuser, also wrapped up in the forces of energy of life. Um, and even he, he says, you know, and, and he becomes Jehovah, Christ becomes Jehovah rather than is. Um, I don't know, maybe there's a, that's a way of kind of 
desacralizing him or giving him a new role? I'm taking a stab here. Yeah, there's definitely a change going on, right? So, like, if we want to take it as the idea that, um, if it, so we'd like to believe, perhaps, or at least, um, the, the type of uh, Christianity that Blake is uh, criticizing here would like to believe that there's this hardline distinction between the uh, the Messiah and Milton and the uh, the kind of Satan we see in the book of Job. But if both are doing the accusing, all of a sudden they both become the voice of the adversary. And so, right, um, if we walk that a little bit further in, if that's the case, and we want to call the uh, the children of Satan sin and death, but Satan also turns out to be the, the Messiah for Milton, then what you would like to call life and, um, shall we say, uh, life and a kind of virtue, to use the, uh, the contrary, all of a sudden these things start to connect. All of a sudden, they're not like, um, they're not isolated from one another. And there's this, this, this um, part of the reason we can make that kind of uh, isolation is we're missing this perspective. Uh, I think later on, he's going to write uh, Swedenborg's mistake as he talked to none of the devils in hell. When I first uh, read the Marriage of Heaven and How, I've, I've waited for the Rinja to be more appearing, but instead it was more about Messiah. And then uh, I wondered why Blake was using Messiah as the, as the character. But it makes sense if another, if, if Blake would um, create another character, then it would still be a contradictory, and it would still not be married. But instead, and in he, he uses the Messiah, it shows that uh, these two forces are all in him as well, and it is all in life as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. If, if they're connected and all that, and we can't isolate them from one another, then we're back to how do we make progress? We make progress through contraries. Just like you're saying. So really, part of the way we can see this is the history has been adapted by both parties. But it's, it's, it's the stories told differently, right? But um, really, what, what the narrator is going to say here is, um, you know, what, what he's talking about in terms of this inversion and all that, um, to support this, um, this infernal interpretation, as he calls it, uh, in, the, in the gospel, Jesus will pray to the Father to send the comforter or desire, the reason they have ideas to build on. The Jehovah of, of the Bible being no other than he who dwells in flaming fire. So if we want to associate fire with the devil and I'm far off from heaven, that doesn't explain, uh, you know, the voice of God in the burning bush. That doesn't explain the pillar of fire or all this other connection with deity and fire. So now we've got, you know, you can see the starting to crumble, right? There's an infernalization going on. So why is that significant? 
Anybody? Yeah, let's try this. So with this infernalization, what opens up to us? Is what you're saying that the Jehovah or the God, Yahweh of the Old Testament, is a kind of like demiurge or it's a kind of God that uh, also it doesn't exist through some pure transcendental you know, interaction with humankind or something, but is it uses and exerts like just creative destructive forces like that of fire, like actual plagues and floods and all kinds of other things. And so if you were to, well, I guess either dismiss that entirely, that's one option, but if you were to, I guess, take anything from that, it would be to then try and think of that God as, yeah. And, and I guess maybe this is where the kind of heretical take is, is that, what informs that kind of energy or that kind of being isn't isn't purely good you know there's there's a form of what we understand to be evil in there and even in the story of job of like allowing you know this person this prophet i suppose to be deprived and have boils on his skin and have satan kind of torture him as an experiment um you know there has to be some elements of the of negativity or the, I don't know how to do, I don't know what word to use, but is, is that kind of what you're getting at? Or? Uh, in part, right? Like the Satan is an accuser, right? And so like, we're not going to go too far into the book of Job because it's, that is a very challenging text. Um, although one worth reading, but um, yeah, there's something opening up to us, right? Remember Rintra roaring and setting the skies alight? Uh, the narrator has just set heaven on fire, right? Deity is now co connected to fire, as opposed to thinking of deity um, outside of fire, right? It's, instead of thinking about heaven existing on one side and hell existing on another, and there being the absence of fire and fire, it, it turns out it's not that simple. It turns out the contraries are at work with one another, right? And so... Um, I think what can kind of help us see what we're getting out of this is that note about Milton, where uh, Blake writes, the reason Milton wrote in fetters when he wrote of angels and God, and at liberty when of devils and hell, is because he was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. What we're seeing is um, Milton cloaking God and uh, the Trinity and reason but cloaking uh, Satan and that brand in liberty, uh, in infernality. And that's the interesting part of Paradise Lost, right? What's interesting is the compelling character of, uh, of Satan. Is, uh, I'm sure you guys have probably seen this in like the movies and that, right? The Prince of Darkness, uh, the rhetorical genius, the poet, right? So all of a sudden these things... Uh, right. If we go back to that distinction of um, desire being so weak, it can be bound by reason. Uh, what Milton shows us for Blake is how a commitment to that kind of falls apart on itself in the very act of writing poetry, particularly good poetry.
Yeah, I think this uh, coincides with like a theory of magic that sort of uh, magic is the cognitive modality that goes beyond logic or that there is an irrational element uh, and that there is an, yeah, but well, creativity is destructive, obviously. But the, there's a sort of uh, expressive uh, satisfaction that is never reached by reason and that can only be reached when the desire is too strong to be um, held back by reason. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and that begins to change when we understand reason is the circumference of energy. If, if reason is the circumference of energy, then we don't really have to play this game of reason being the messiah that frees us from energy. I liked what you'd said. I kind of uh, needed to hear it again. I'm not sure if I fully grasped it, but when you were talking about even in the, in the very act of writing poetry, the, it, were you saying that there's a like elemental requirement of a kind of liberty to just the very act of creativity that, uh, as uh, what do you what's the word like by definition needs to avail itself of something other than the passivity of of reason in order to like do what it does. Is that what you were kind of saying? Yeah, that is very much what I'm getting at. Right, energy is eternal delight. So, like, that is the contrary of believing that uh, God will torment man in eternity for following uh, his energy. Actually, energy comes with eternal delight. It comes with a sense of infinity that the senses can begin to appreciate uh, in the soul and in the body. And so, if Milton writes in fetters when he writes of deity and the trinity, he focuses on that, um, that perimeter of reason. He doesn't get. He doesn't go into the energy of it, right? And so we have this notion of uh, right. Uh, Jesus just becomes a sum of senses, a ratio of them. Uh, deity just becomes a deferred future or fate. Uh, the, the the Holy Spirit becomes uh, a vacuum, right? None of that's very interesting, is it? It's all very stale and, um, um, you know, it's not very useful, is it? Right. What good is a God that um, is always deferred? Uh, what good is a, a Messiah that is nothing but um, an aggregate of senses? But in contrast to that, when Milton writes about Satan, it comes with all this energy. And the way those contraries interplay, that begins to produce the kind of liberty and the kind of poetry that I think makes Milton so compelling. Uh, at least for Blake, but even in other poets, right? There's this, there's this progression through those contraries. There's this sense of um, a kind of liberty that that compels us, that delights us. Does uh, does that help clarify Alyosha? Absolutely. Um, I was wondering if maybe we should continue at some point. Yeah, I do apologize. I, I know we're spending a lot of time on these sections, but this is a, a dense, difficult test. I, I thought it'd be, um, 
thought it'd be most advantageous if we kind of just dive into the sections and you know as opposed to doing a, a larger textual analysis because I think it's even though that it's still something worth doing uh, the difficulty of the test uh, kind of opens itself up to this and so with that um, are there any final thoughts on that section? Okay, we're going to read the memorable fancy and stop at the Proverbs of Hell. We're not going to read all the Proverbs of Hell. Um, we don't have time for 69 Proverbs and unpacking them. So um, what we'll do is when we get to the Proverbs of Hell, uh, just like we did kind of earlier, we can start sharing uh, the ones that interest and in unpacking them. And so with that, um, does anybody want to read the memorable fancy? Sure, I can. Go for it, Doug. <clears throat> As I was walking among the fires of hell, delighted with the enjoyments of genius, which to angels look like torment and insanity, I collected some of their proverbs, thinking that as the sayings used in a nation mark its character, so the proverbs of hell show the nature of infernal wisdom better than any description of buildings or garments. When I came home on the abyss of the five senses, where a flat-sided steep frowns over the present world, I saw a mighty devil folded in black clouds hovering on the sides of the rock. With corroding fires, he wrote the following sentence, now perceived by the minds of men and read by them on earth. How do you know but every bird that cuts the airy way is an immense world of delight closed by your five senses. What do you guys make of this? Alyosha, since you uh, wrote in the chat, what do you make of the abyss of the five senses? Well, it's a, the, the five senses is something that is starting to come up a bit in the poem or in the work. And to me, it seems like there's something about man's limited experience um, channeled through the senses that he finds, yeah, I guess, uh, limiting. So let me see if I can go back to where we were. Um, sorry, I lost my place. Yeah, so, yeah, on the abyss of the five senses. Yeah, even that last line, how do you know but every bird that cuts the airy way in an immense world of delight closed by your senses five? You know, that he, I think earlier he says in the end of that, uh, the contra contraries to those truths, he says energy is eternal delight. So in an immense, is, yeah, there's an immense world of delight that is closed by the five senses, uh, that it can't be accessed because that's just a kind of pure, the energy of all the universe in existence. And yeah, I'm not sure what to make of the, the devil in the black clouds uh, in that sense, but um, I think that's what I'm getting out of it. Yeah, and notice the word abyss there, right? If we go back to the previous section, uh, it indeed appeared to reason as if desire was cast out. But the devil's account is that the Messiah fell and formed a heaven of what he saw from the abyss. So now at the edge of the five senses, we're finding um, we're finding a kind of wisdom coming out at us, right? This devil is writing something for us. We're seeing these shifting perspectives again. 
so are you reading abyss of the five senses as sort of some kind of liminal state um potentially right um so like the five senses are the chief inlets of the soul in this in this age so the five senses are in our time how we are able to kind of understand body and soul they're part of how we make our progression and so if um if reason thought that desire was cast out into uh and it turns out that uh desire or like uh like we were talking about what we've been calling the Satan or Messiah. If that took from the eternal abyss uh, desire with it and created a heaven from it, uh, right, we're finding this creation of a kind of infernal heaven. Uh, to say it just a little bit differently, um, with this creation and with the, the abyss of the five senses, right? Uh, so Milton calls the Holy Ghost vacuum. What if it's not a vacuum in the sense of the absence of space? What if it's the kind of abyss we see in this poem where it's this, um, it's this progression through things? So then is what you're saying that the abyss here is not a kind of lacunae or gap or absence, but it's actually kind of invert, uh, mirrored or mirrored world or a recreated world by other means or by another logic, in a sense. Like, I guess I'm reading here the, the devil's corroding fires that kind of connects to what we were saying before of like there's, there's a, a revelation or a kind of a revealing in that corrosion that isn't purely destructive, but kind of peels things back as well. Am I, am I getting close to what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, exactly, right? The, the one tweak I would make is the abyss comes with progression. But yeah, that's exactly it, where the five senses come with, with peeling back uh, this kind of uh, surface, getting, you know, uh, like we were saying with the devil, um, revealing out of earth this, um, this kind of proverb. You say progression, are you trying to say that it's not that the abyss is opposed to the world somehow, but it's like, it's the natural progression of of the world as it is to, to the next state? Is that what you're trying to say? Um, when I call it progression, I, I think the abyss comes, I mean, in some sense, we could maybe say the abyss has its own contrary, um, which would probably be thinking of it as a vacuum. But I think with that, there comes this sense of progression um, that we've been talking about. And so like in some ways, what I'm kind of suggesting is uh, the abyss, the abyss isn't something to be looked at like in Nietzsche, the abyss is something to be journeyed through. Different abyss, of course. Go ahead, Doug. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think it's kind of, um, what we're getting at is that the abyss as progression is not, well, it's not the negation in the sense of like nothingness. That's like the ironic sense of it. What it is, is like the sense of just something not what we're at, something different where we can try to get to. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, um, I think that's exactly what I'm getting at. 
I also love this line about the, what is it, the the enjoyments of genius, which to angels look like torment and insanity. And it, it connects like, to a proverb that later comes in where he says, improvement makes straight roads, but the crooked roads without improvement are roads of genius. So there, there's a, there's something about that kind of meandering, the ability of of maybe thought, energy, creativity, whatever it may be, to not be kind of like mechanically improved or made better in a certain way, but to be allowed to, you know, wreak its work upon the world. You know, like, what does he say? The fool, the fool's ins- insult is like a kingly title or something like that. Yes. To, to allow those those forces to re- reap or wreak what they may is like act- is actual genius versus uh I don't know, maybe what he sees in Swedenborg and others, kind of this... Because I think he repeatedly says at some point in the text that Swedenborg isn't saying anything new, and he's not really saying anything at all. He's just kind of, like, rearranging words and making them seem interesting. So. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, right? So, um... Right there where we've got this perspective of the angels, right? Um, where the... Um, it would seem that walking among the fires of hell looks like a torment and insanity. And for them, it probably does. But um, in a different sense, like Alyosha is saying, one way of kind of thinking about this is if you've ever sat down to write anything, you're not going to be able to think your way through it, are you? You don't, um, at least I, I, don't, I don't think you're going to be able to think out something to write it's going to be an energy, right? It's going to be something you're developing and creating. And from the perspective of reason, which would like to do things kind of in an ordered fashion at that surface, um, it's going to look insane. But actually what you're doing is you're developing the road that can be improved, right? So like, right, you do your first draft, you do, then you edit it and do the second, right? And that's when you kind of engage with reason more and more. But yeah, this is, I, I, Alyosha, I think you're dead on with what you're getting at. And then note the perspective, right? So we're talking about how to make progress and going through this abyss. Later, we're going to see an angel pull through the abyss, right? Um, if we want to make progress, right, we've got to have contraries. And um, if you simply don't allow yourself to engage in that creative process, uh, to use your imagination, I think is probably the easiest way to say it, then you're not going to be able to produce a lot because you'll be very passive. Like Alyosha was saying about Swedenborg, uh, he's gonna talk about the analytes later on. You're gonna be stuck with just kind of dissecting things and rearranging them, improving on them, sure, um, but what will you have created? What insight will you have developed? Okay, and with that, what do you guys, because um, we're about to, we have about 20 minutes left, so I think we can kind of uh, start to wrap this up. Uh, what do you make of that final um, writing, uh, which is, how do you know But every bird that cuts the airy ways is an immense world of delight closed by your senses five? Ayosha, I think you began to comment on this earlier. Could you um, 
Could you remind us of what you were discussing? I, I was going from the angle of, um, you know, he, he ends one of the sections above saying energy is eternal delight. And that, you know, it, when he's saying an, an immense world of delight closed by your senses five, that there's, again, this and the abyss of the five senses above that, like, there is a limiting factor to the senses that I think we talked about earlier in the in the beginning, the your doors, the doors of perception aren't able to really truly open because of the way our senses process experience. But actually reading it now, I'm, I'm just trying to look at it. And it, I was kind of seeing it just that, that line, immense world of delight closed by your senses five. But reading it together with the first line, how do you know but every bird that cuts the airy way is an immense world of delight? And, and that's an interesting, again, I don't know if that's a specific allusion to something, but uh, this invocation of the of a bird of this like flying thing that even every single one you know that there's i don't know if, if he's kind of getting at there's like an inextricable uh what's that fancy word we said in those other sessions hexaity there's an inextricable sort of like thingness that is in, infinite to even something like every single little bird in the sky that you could never access simply with your 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 five senses, and much less through some kind of rational uh, radiocination or thinking process, which made me think about what you were saying before about imagination. I think, again, having cheated a little bit and reading about Blake online, I, I did think he, there is something about the imagination which is compelling to him, and I think that might be an interesting contrast for us to think about, of like, how would imagination be opposed to the kind of passive reason that he understands? Because you might commonsensically think of it as as a as a process of thought of active thought but it seems to me that there is some kind of you know like we were saying meandering um open-ended non-rational nature to that kind of reflection that maybe gets at a hint for him of of what you could those worlds of delight that you could be missing um that's that's my kind of off-the-cuff reading what do you guys make of what Alyosha is telling us? Do you agree? Do you want to expand on that? I definitely agree with the uh, impression that there's getting at this sort of, uh, yeah, intrinsic living experience of the uh, bird um, closed off by the five senses. So I was trying to figure out what the connection might be to the fact that uh, for Blake Milton's uh, Messiah is related to the five senses, the ratio of the five senses, senses, so sort of to me that's drawing a connection to the closing off. Like we've divided by the five senses, so we're closed off to certain things. Yeah, and, and closing them off with the perimeter of reason, right? So a lot of what Alyosha is talking about and Doug, what you're getting at is taking us back into what energy is. Ha, nice one. Um, it's taking us back to what energy is, right? And so if we talk about um, the bird or any bird flying across the sky, that's a really clear image, right? That's something that we can latch on to and kind of dissect and say, yep, there's the wings, there's the sky, there are those clouds, uh, there's flying. But in terms of like a, a kind of energy, right? Something a little bit different than reason. 
what can we see is going on in this um, this image of the bird flying? Well, it's kind of like a pure embodiment almost. Okay. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. <clears throat> well, it's like by trying to perceive it through a rational mind and through the five senses, we're kind of missing the fact that it's really this body in itself and this body is carrying energy. Or, uh, yeah. And that, that yeah. sort of the motion of energy itself is the delight of the world. Yeah, and, and so what is energy able to show us that reason isn't? What, what goes into that? I'm not sure. I'm picking up on what you're uh, trying to get at here. Uh, in a very basic sense, uh, what else is there to people besides reason? Or to birds besides reason? Well, particularly to birds, there's song. You're saying there's song? Mm-hmm. Okay. What else are we, we, can we kind of take out of this? I suppose both song and flight, you know, they're linked to desire, aren't they? Um, desire to communicate or to, you know, there's like mating rituals as well, or just to do it, you know, the desiring machines, can we call them, of the bird, just emitting the sounds, mm -hmm. as well as the as desire for movement and, and flying and just sort of the freedom of doing that outside of any rational process. Yeah. Exactly right. There's energy, there's desire, and um, right, in the sense of people, we're not just reason, are we? Uh, we're talking about romanticism, right? We've got emotions, right? Can I be heard okay? Could you speak up just a little bit? Sam, I'm having a tough time hearing you. Yeah, I was just going to say, is it connectivity things as well? Are you, like, in a good place to receive signals? Um, I think so. I usually don't have any issues. Uh, I need just something from the middle of the square. Uh, I'll figure out what my issues are. Sorry. Uh, sorry. Yeah, so um, do you want to try and give us your, your idea again? Or if you want to type it in the, uh, the chat, we can read it for you. Uh, okay, let's see if they're going to type it. Um, okay, so while Sarah Sam is writing that, um, yeah, so we have this immense world of delight in the bird, right? And maybe um, there's something to using the five senses and other means of perception to think of, to, should, maybe I, perhaps I shouldn't say think about, um, but to consider the bird in a way beyond just the rational. Sarah Sam writes, um, I feel like there's something to the bird being mentioned in that it's not human because the human is judged by good and evil and reason and energy. Reason and energy are things we give value judgment to. And so, yeah, the bird is a little bit different than the person, right? The bird is not Adam going back to uh, paradise. 
one thing that strikes me too is that it might be said that a bird has a body. And so it's difficult to kind of wonder, like, could the bird also be, uh, <laughs> could the bird also be having this kind of experience? And so Sarah Sam writes, uh, so I think the bird is something that asks us, is there something else unknown that we can't tap into? Is there something outside the human being system of judgment and value that is worth evaluating outside of the five senses? What do you guys think? I'm seeing a lot of bird emojis, so I think that's an agreement. I mean, I agree. I think the challenge is to say, like, you know, to even start talking about that. Yeah, and so I think part of the trick is if we're going to use the five senses and other, and we're going to do perception, right, which might take us out of the five senses in some ways even. But uh, if we're going to do this kind of perception, uh, perhaps we need to perceive a little bit more than just the reason of it all. I suppose since we're really just in that initial sort of few sections of the text, the, the Proverbs... I actually think it would be good next time. We don't have to like completely pour over every single one, but I think it would be good to read them through because they're all kind of like, you know, little one-liners. And I think that sort of starts to give you a bit of the meat to like work with. Start trying to tease out what are these, yeah, what is it, what could be an excess of reason? And then the, like what you were saying, reason on the, what was it on the circumference of energy? Like I think we'll start to see a little bit of what I don't think it's an accident that he's about to begin the proverb section having ended with this bit about the bird. So I think maybe that discussion will get easier in what seems like will have to be our second session on this text uh, next Saturday. As long as everyone's okay with uh, re maybe rereading the text and doing a little bit more, Blake, are you all uh, open to that? I don't want to force Blake down anybody's throat. Yeah, I'm definitely. down with the book. Okay. Yeah, and <laughs> that's funny. Um, yeah, do do try to read the text beforehand because it is it is a very rich and um, it, it is a challenging text to read. Um, but I think it's a very rewarding one, especially. Um, oh, don't worry about it. Uh, especially for people interested in post-structuralism. Because you can kind of see, like, there is kind of some of those um, some of those ideas coming through in here, right? Like, uh, I was talking about this text with somebody in the pension server, and they said, it's kind of Deleuze. And I said, well, uh, Deleuze is almost uh, 150 years after Blake. I think what you mean is Deleuze is Blakean or Blake-esque. Uh, I think that's kind of the coolness of this. But with that, I think we can kind of start to close off on this idea that maybe there's a way of thinking about things or engaging with them, perhaps to use a better verb. Maybe there's a way of engaging with things that doesn't just occur through reason. And so um, does anyone have any final thoughts? We have about uh, seven minutes left. Does anybody want to talk about maybe some wisdom they're getting out of this test or some insights? some ideas, some applications even.
Begum writes, um, I agree with Sarah Sam. We don't accept bird as rational, though it can do what we, what we can't fly. Showing us that energy or evil is not just the absence of good, it has more elements than that. I, I think you're right, it takes us out of, you know, that kind of, um, that kind of uh, static morality, that static aesthetic even. I guess too, something for us to all think about and chew on as we go into the next session is like the time that Blake is writing in, you know, the, his work on sensuality and something resembling a kind of free love and open sensuality that was opposed to the strict morals of the time. There's something that I think might have been much more clear to a reader of this in his era that, you know, the idea, just because it might sound kind of far-fetched to say, oh, energy is evil, but why, why would it be evil? But I think that might be because we benefit from a more, we exist in a more libertine era in, you know, uh, in modern capitalist, like, modernity. So I think there's something about that, you know, the, the, the old Christian traditions of, like, uh, self-mortification and denial of pleasure and the denial of the body that are very, very present here. And so, you know, anything that all the, if you think of the seven deadly sins and all the things that motivate us supposedly towards sinfulness, they're all, they're framed in kind of like classical Orthodox theology, I guess, as kind of their forms of activity, of idleness, of, you know, allowing the body's innate desires to have free reign. And so all forms, you know, I mean, if you go super deep on the like, you know, Christian Aristotelian you know, perspective on these things, then the only way to deal with that is through reason and thought and, and controlling the passions. And so, you know, what might seem like a trivial kind of analogy of like, oh, energy is bad for some reason. Well, it's, it's really connected to, and it will become much more obviously sensual and sexual, I think, as we read through it, that, you know, the, the body is this, supposed to be the source of all this sort of un, unfortunate energy that if, if humans could, they would wish to do away with. And yeah, I think that's a lot of what he's trying to do here is say that's not, we shouldn't lament it. And it's actually the font of all our creativity and, and not just that, but that there's a kind of divinity in it as well. So, yeah. Yeah. I think you're spot on. And if you were reading this in 1790, right during the, particularly in even the UK, right, this would be a completely different experience than now where we can kind of, like Alyosha saying, we have a little bit more freedom in that. Um, and so, like, to read this kind of text out in sort of the emergence of the, near the end of the Enlightenment even, but, you know, with that kind of orthodoxy uh, hanging over you, you know, the first thing that would come to your mind, right, is you're in, you're in a position of damnation, right? This is the kind of work that gets burned at the stake. And so I, I think, Alyosha, you're making some excellent points about the historical context of the text. And um, even like today, right, like now, this is kind of taken for granted that everything's energy or whatever, um, right? It's a very new age idea. But at Blade's time, this is like a a different way of thinking about things altogether, and um, of thinking through contraries rather than trying to 
look at um, a favorization of one over the other, right? You, in that that sense of the angel looking at uh, the devil, or the the um, the act of energy, right, is this uh, terrible insanity. It ends up giving us this profound realization out of the earth. Um, I was going to say something, but uh, do we have time? <laughs> uh, yeah, we've got a few minutes. Go ahead and uh, take us home. Uh, I think uh, this text is also sort of like a call to action, if that makes sense. Because um, we can also uh, see it in the context of the French and the American revolutions, um, which had happened. Uh, by then, uh, for example, further on in the text, he talks about um, uh, the, the printing press, and this is from Wikipedia. Ink black and print workers were commonly referred to as a printer's devil, and revolutionary publications were regularly denounced from the pulpits as the work of the devil. Um, so I think um, he's also, um, you know, he talks about progress and when contraries come together, um, there's progress, right? He might be talking about also um, societal progress and uh, how revolutionary ideas cannot exist without um, the passion and the uh, anger of the situations in which people find themselves. Uh, so like revolutionary ideas are sort of inanimate and impossible without um, the passion of revolution and revolutionary fervor. Yeah, I think you're right about that too, because this is a very revolutionary text, uh, not just due to its time period, but due to the writing. And so, um, I think you've given us a lot to think about as we, we move away from the tests back to our lives. And uh, perhaps when we're sitting down today and we see a bird fly overhead, maybe we'll start to think about what kind of world of immense delight uh, that, that bird actually can kind of start to teach us about. And so with that, everyone, thank you for joining us for our first session of William Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell and our discussion about it. We will continue the discussion with the Proverbs of Hell next Saturday at noon PDT, the same time as today. Um, we'll start out by talking about our favorite Proverbs, or even the Proverbs we don't understand, and we'll keep moving through the text that way. Um, if you'd like to continue talking, or even throughout the week, continue discussing the text, uh, you're more than welcome to use the literature channel. And, um, you know, this is a dialogue. Feel free to uh, respond to each other, um, kind of critically engage with one another, and to, uh, in a Blakeian sense, kind of imagine things. <laughs>